Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. As more regulation of data collection becomes the norm around the world, we see efforts to legislate on privacy when it's really data governance around collection, retention, and the deletion of the data that the government wants to control. Tech companies have the challenge of how to comply with their patchwork of global privacy rules while keeping data flowing in a way that sustains their business model. The privacy risks that give companies trouble often arise from the engineering level because the regulations change after the application has been designed by the engineering team. My guest today is an engineer who wants to bring the privacy or data governance issues into the product design phase as early as possible, often called privacy by design. But what if engineers and company executives had a better mutual understanding of what design decisions create privacy risks? Today's guest is Nishant Basharia. Nishant is currently the head of technical privacy and governance at Uber. He wants to bring the engineers and the corporate data protection teams together earlier in the design phase that can manage today's data protection demands and have the ability to change as legislation passes and regulations create new data retention rules. Nishant is a native to the digital economy. He previously led Google's compliance, data protection, security, and privacy team. Prior to his stint at Google, he served at Netflix as the head of privacy engineering. And earlier in his career, he was the engineer and program lead of Nike's privacy and compliance team. Shant wrote a book titled Privacy Engineering that will be available this August. His book seeks to help engineers and company executives classify privacy risk early on in the development process for apps and software. He also seeks to help companies implement technical privacy architectures that safely manage consumer data and increase transparency for users. Nishant joins us today to discuss several points of interest in his book, including how companies can more generally protect consumer data and help users make informed privacy decisions. Nishant, welcome to the Explain to Shane podcast. It's a real treat for our listeners to hear from both a privacy leader and a major American company author. So you have a book coming out soon on privacy engineering that focuses on data collection by design as it relates to business applications, software systems through technical privacy solutions. And you specifically work on data governance, legal compliance, and surviving security audits, which is something I've been focusing on a lot as we keep waiting for there to be some national privacy legislation. I think those are going to be some core pillars, but it hasn't happened yet. (laughs) So luckily, your book's coming out so people can think about this as we think about drafting legislation. So I think it's really fantastic timing that you've written this book, and I'm so excited to talk to you today. Before we get into the specifics of your book, what inspired you to write this book? Thank you again, Shane, and thank you for having me on the podcast. A couple of things. The first thing is when engineers build tools every single day, there's been a lot of segmentation of how work actually happens in companies. Like there's internet segmentation, but there's actual service segmentation where engineer A does stuff with data, with services, with infrastructure that engineer B has no awareness of. And when you combine the work both of them do, that creates risks that companies cannot prepare for, that creates opportunities for bad actors inside and outside the company. So how do you at the technical tooling level, address those risks. You either do them right from the get-go or you play catch-up forever. So it's this book is aimed primarily at those engineers so that they have the tooling and the understanding to do the things right from the get-go. That's audience number one. But my second audience are the executives, the regulators, the folks in the media, the folks in the U.S. Senate, the folks in the House of Representatives. These are the folks who have taken it upon themselves to bring this issue to light. Like when I first got into privacy and security about 10 years ago, It was one of those nice to have esoteric, altruistic things that some of us did out in the corner there. But now there's actual impact. There's harm. Bad actors from across across the world could weaponize 
these weaknesses, how do you make sure that people understand all the dependencies, the weaknesses, the complexities of getting this stuff right? How do you make sure that people, when they pass legislation, they understand exactly what the moving parts are? You know, the difference in context between the executive regulatory layer and the engineering layer is too big, and it is to our detriment as a company, as a country, as a society. So my hope here is to close that gap. So yes, it's called privacy engineering, but my hope is even people who don't write code read this book to understand just what it takes to build these systems in place. Did the California privacy law, the CCPA, inspire this at all, since you probably had to do some workarounds or some additional work once that came out a couple of years ago? So I've been working on this stuff for more than a couple of years. So my work in this space predates the CCPA and even the GDPR. I've been teaching courses on LinkedIn learning for this stuff for a while, and they've done really well. And that tells me that people who talk about this stuff publicly very confidently nonetheless have a lot of questions that they're afraid to ask publicly because that means they then have to say, are we not doing X? Are we not doing Y? And I feel like industry is running scared because they have built up all this data. They were told for a long time, collect data, monetize it, make your services available free in a very democratic fashion. And therefore, that is funded by data, right? And now suddenly we're told, okay, you have to collect data differently. You have to delete data. You have to obfuscate data. And there's very little prescriptive guidance on what to do, right? So it's almost like when I became a US citizen, I was told that if you forget to submit something correctly, it's not the government's fault, it's your fault. It's you. You're supposed to understand immigration law correctly. Just me, this little person here. Now, the entire industry is in the same spot with security and privacy. So I wrote this book primarily. Initially, I was like building out notes two years out, two years ago. And I was approached by the publisher about a year ago saying, hey, you want to do this book? And I'm like, fine, I have all this stuff ready to go. So, and then of course, GDPR came in, the CCPA came in, Apple and Facebook have come in with their little dialogue about the third-party cookies and the consent platform. So it's like my preparation of over a decade going back in time and all the news that just keeps on coming with the industry, with cyber warfare. So there's been no shortage of material. The challenge has been, how do I constrain all this within 325 pages? So now I feel like we're just getting a look inside your notebook you've been carrying around for the last, like, I don't know, 10 years. And you're like, okay, we're going to have to fix that or we're going to have to fix that because as the laws come on, what you can and can't keep definitely changes. One of my major issues that I've been preaching for years is around what I call data bloat, which is it's so easy now between, you know, whatever kind of, if you're in the cloud or whatever enterprise system you're in to keep information, it's cheap compared to before when you had to care about storage. So the idea that you actually have liability around that information and you should think about it before you just kind of capture everything is an underlying thing that I've been talking about for quite a while, only because that's one of the reasons why ransomware is such a big deal. There's so much information to be garnered if you get into these systems. So I think this is, you're doing a great service to not, to everybody, engineers, companies, the privacy advocates who really know what they want the outcome to be, but they don't understand the complexity of what you have to do to to do just what you just said, to walk through so many different elements of an operation. So you're at Uber, yeah. and obviously Uber was launched as an app. I mean, it was always in the you know the native application space. There, there is a web portal, which the only time I go there is to get my, if I need a receipt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you mentioned GDPR. Give us an idea of what you had to do that was perhaps a workaround or a, a restructure when GDPR passed for Uber. So a lot of that work was done before I joined the company. I was at a different company back then. And I'm, I think more fundamentally, I tell people, and I run a privacy engineering organization, I report straight to the chief information security officer. My general guidance is don't use the GDPR or the CCPA as sort of your only beacon. Use those as a as sort of a platform to build on. Because these laws are not the be all and all. GDPR is not history. It's a harbinger in terms of what it means. If you look at more and more laws that are coming up, the discussions that are taking place, 
they build on the GDPR. So my general sense is if you are trying to reduce data collection, GDPR doesn't give you a way to do that. If you're trying to delete data intelligently, GDPR doesn't let you essentially get a, a checklist to do that. So my general approach is let's collect less data. I have this diagram that I often show executive members of the board that you look at the data as a funnel. You have the narrow end on the left-hand side and the broad end on the right-hand side. When data enters the company, it grows more and more. And then when data is collected, people find new uses for it. Remember, it's like when you are in a meeting, people are like, oh, this meeting should take only 10 minutes. And then you essentially go five minutes over because people find new topics. Data is like that. So my general guidance, whether I'm at Uber or any other company for that matter is, Let's make sure we collect what we need to collect. Let's delete data as soon as possible. But more importantly, let's centralize data. So rather than you as an engineer making your copy of the data and me making my copy, let's have one copy so there's one unit to protect, one unit to replicate, one unit to rate limit and throttle, things like that. So the problem with using GDPR as a reference is that it tells you things at a first principle basis, but your implementation is going to be very, very company specific. So this book focuses a lot on tooling because if you build out the right tooling, engineers will do the right thing just by design because it's baked into the infrastructure. My sense is engineers will do the right thing if you make it easy for them to do that. And that's what this book does. So GDPR, treat that as a beginning, use it as a reference point, but don't assume that just because you got GDPR done two or three years ago, you are somehow done with privacy. It's only the beginning. My favorite example is when Target was breached back in 2014 or 15, they were PCI compliant and they the bad actors got into the HVAC system. Talk about heating things up a little bit, right? So don't use these laws as sort of an insurance policy because they were never intended to be as such. I was just talking about that the other day that, you know, you just don't know where your third parties or, you know, how they're going to get into your system. So engineers love decision trees. <laughs> so you're, I can see where you'd be like, okay, we've gotten to a branch of the tree that we need to walk back up and you know, yeah. fix some things along the way. So chapter one, you do a great job of just explaining the premise of privacy. And I'll be candid. I often talk about this and I say, privacy is a feeling. It is hard for people to legislate and regulate around privacy. To me, it's really about transparency and accountability. Mm -hmm. So a couple of weeks ago, we had Apple with the Worldwide Developers Conference, the WWDC, talk about adding more capability to put transparency and accountability into their ecosystem around the Apple apps. Was that something that concerned you at all? Or are you guys like, I got that. We already have all these things, these, these levers in place. I think the Apple conversation is interesting because I remember when I first got into privacy, the typical use case that popped up differently was if you look at the US opt-in sort of sector, the the box tends to be pre-checked and you are considered to be opted in and you have to opt out. And the assumption is fewer people are going to proactively check, uncheck the box. And of course, on the European side, the box is opted out and you have to preemptively check in. Essentially, what Apple is doing is we're all Europeans now, we're all Parisians again, if you will. So that's their approach. And what Apple is saying is, and and fundamentally their approach is, our customers deserve privacy. And of course, some of the more platforms that essentially collect that data and create that data into other things to benefit small businesses are saying, okay, if you shut down the data, our ability to approach the platform for free and give it to customers for free goes down. So that's kind of the contest here. The part that people haven't really talked about is what do the customers really know? So if you are somebody like my mom, she loves reading the small print. She wants to understand, do I check this box? Do I check that box? She cares about that stuff deeply. She runs a couple of miles every day. My dad, on the other hand, uses WhatsApp only to send me fake news. He doesn't really care. So if you, <laughs> if you showed him this big privacy center that says, here's 15 different options, he's going to get exhausted. He's going to be like, oh, I had no idea you were collecting this much data, but now that I do, maybe I'll uncheck everything, right? So I don't know if our customer base has been made aware of the sheer number of choices, all that happens behind the scenes. 
And now we're suddenly saying, here's options, tell us what you would have us do. And I think what's going to happen is it's, it might become like GDPR where people just, or rather the do not sell option with the CCPA, where people just check it and just move on because it's getting too exhausting. Because, you know, when we open the app as customers and not as engineers or as think tank experts, when we open the app, we're trying to get somewhere. When we open Netflix, we want to stream something. When we open Amazon, we want to buy something. The idea of having this extra speed bump and reading it, processing it is not something we have been trained to do. So I don't know if the debate is something that's going to necessarily help the customers. My general sense, Shane, is when you make a change on privacy or security, the ultimate filter is, is it going to benefit the customers? And I'm not sure if the customers, the users in this case, have enough context to really make the most informed decision. So I love the debate that's taking place between Apple and Facebook. So I live in Mountain View, California. Apple's to my south, Facebook's to my north. And I'm literally geographically in, in the middle of that debate. I'm just not sure if the regular customers A, understand the complexity of the debate and B, will be better off regardless of which way we end up. I have for years when I'm on panels say, I wish we had some version of emojis yeah. that really your dad would love this is, and this is basically what Apple is doing from what I understand is it's like, I'm collecting your data, I'm selling your data, I'm, yeah. you know, all the different things, but there would be little things that you would look at. And in this case, they've done the microphone, the collecting of contacts, and then the idea that you can now augment and say only use while using the app. I mean, those are things that have been there in the background. And I think they've just done a good job of putting it a little more forward. But I still love the idea of like, if your dad looked at the emojis and said, well, there's only one here that's a no-go for me. You know, I'm gonna have to go figure that out. Versus if he looks at it and goes, oh, I don't, those three of those things, you cannot have, I'm always fascinated when people want access to my contacts and it has nothing to do with what the app is doing. You know, it's, it's kind of a fascinating space. And then the Facebook, actually, I had a conversation with Facebook when this got pre-announced by Apple and they were a little miffed about it. And I said, you know, they're doing you guys a favor. Most people don't care that much how much information is flowing off because they don't really know where it goes. And that is a separate conversation that I wish they did. But you need to be straightforward. If something is streaming my information all the time off of an app, I probably want to know about that. Which brings me to a question that's more Uber specific because obviously you guys need mapping. And you have other things that are plugging into your app payment systems, for example. Do these rules challenge either one of those things for the Uber app? I don't believe I have that full information right this second, chain. But what I can tell you is that I have a team that reports into me whose job it is to work with engineers. And when they build out these engineering requirement documents, we essentially advise them on the get-go. And what happens is my team partners with the privacy council's office and we offer them guidance on a case-by-case basis. So my general sense is as long as before something of that scale complexity ships, there is an engineer on my side, somebody with privacy engineering background, and somebody on the legal side with, with privacy legal background, we make sure that we, we protect sort of the data on all ends up. Because on the legal side, there's obviously the compliance angle, which is, are we doing the right thing from an Apple contractual perspective? Because obviously to do the right thing, we have to be listed on the app store. And we, if we don't do the right thing, there's danger there. On the other side, on the engineering aspect, we want to make sure that there is nothing being done by the engineer that runs afoul of what is being committed to on the legal side. So what I can say is that obviously there's going to be implications in terms of how data is collected, how customers are notified. The fundamental construct here is that there are definitions that only Apple fully understands, right? Like, what do we mean in terms of tracking users? What do we mean in terms of following and essentially tracking people from device to device, context to context, app to app? So there's a lot that is in here that people haven't fully understood. And this is the challenge of privacy law, where I tell my wife that privacy law is like jumping on the treadmill that's already running, and you have to move your hands and feet, and you don't have that much time to adjust the the incline and the speed, right? So what I'm trying to do is get our team on that incline 
making sure that we don't fall off the treadmill, but then also make sure that we're, we have the right numbers in place once we get a moment, momentum on the treadmill. So my general sense is people are looking at Apple because it's such a big deal right now, but there's going to be other stuff. Google's coming in with their third-party cookies. There's going to be different states in the US coming up with their regulation. There's going to be regulation coming up with regards to all the data that is being hoovered up by companies for employees working from home in terms of behavioral data for avoiding insider risk. There's going to be healthcare data. There's going to be data about kids for distance learning. I don't think we have even begun to have the conversation about what consent and tracking is fully going to look like in the years to come. So my general sense is, and this book goes to that, Shane, which is to build a framework that helps address all these issues rather than just over-optimize either for GDPR or the Apple consent framework. I just, in the back of my head, thinking we have to have a conversation with someone there. Like, it's tracking my location. I'm like, it's a mobile app that's what you're asking to go from point A to point B. It's going to need location data. You know, there's a certain point that, you know, there's certain things that are absolutely, you know, necessary on it. And then there's other things that sometimes I'm like, I don't know why this thing wants all my contacts, but have them. Probably, you know, going back to my, my emoji, I'm pretty, I let almost anybody have anything. But that's my choice. Like, I know, I know it when I'm doing it. So from an engineering perspective, are they excited about all this new stuff? <laughs> I think it's interesting, you know, excited is kind of not the word I would use. It's more about from an engineering perspective. And this goes back to the last 10 years since the agile development revolution that took place where engineers were told, we're going to reduce the process that comes in your way. We will let you ship stuff out whenever you want to. It's microservices, complete separation of concerns. So now you have this centralized approach. It's not just privacy, it's cybersecurity as a whole, asset management, third-party vendor approvals. API throttling, auditing stuff, monitoring, risk management, anomaly detection, all of these things are done centrally, where stuff, if you as an engineer do it, Shane, maybe you're okay, but if I do the same thing, it's not okay because the data is different or the context is different, right? So somehow there is this unknown factor about what am I allowed to do? Who really knows for sure? And often you have to check with multiple people. So my job as the head of engineering, tends, privacy engineering tends to be, how do I simplify the workflow so that A, the engineers have some place to come to and they have clear guidance. But B, if they do something wrong, there is detection that can be timely corrected and without too much damage to the business in the sense where you want to detect it as quickly as possible. Because if, it, if you wait too long, it becomes fundamentally a choice of do we ship it with the risk or do we just do the whole thing over again? And neither choice is optimal, right? So I don't think excited is the right word. I think there's just a level of uncertainty. It goes back to the fact that we have no A, central federal privacy law. B, the ones we do have are not very prescriptive. And see, there is not a whole lot of precedent about how people fix these and come back. Those three things make it very challenging for engineers right now. So let's step away from the consumer aspect of this and go to security, which is a priority for you as well. So one of the things that Apple's announced, and this has been in the IETF space for a while, is DOE, the DNS over HTTPS, the idea of encryption. And depending on where you are in the ecosystem, some people say, well, it's going to make me blind, right? And that's, that's not really something that taking your Uber hat off for a second. That is something that edge providers are interested in, in just certain levels of information. The person who's running the network, so this does go back to the consumers, is, you know, if you're running, so I happen to be, I'm on a Comcast line right now. And so one of the things I expect Comcast to do for the fee of the ISP is they help keep my system secure because I'm an individual user on this, right? So as we see an Apple announces, you know, that they're going to do end-to-end encryption and I was just watching a video this morning about how they resource dough. Is that also becoming a challenge for the engineering community on how to deal with security when you don't have a complete picture of where the traffic is originating, going, and exiting? Absolutely. So time was when the only thing you had to worry about was, quote unquote, the man in the middle attacks. That phrase, obviously, every people know what that means. 
Now the challenge is what do you do when data moves between the data centers, like within the data center itself, from DC to DC, DC to cloud, from cloud to cloud. You obviously have this tremendous degree of segmentation where you have different microservices querying different data at different times. And the data often gets stored in different places at the same time. And you have fundamentally this challenge where engineers always believe that they can do what they want to with the data because obviously we're all good ethical people on the inside, right? It's always the actors on the outside that are bad. But the perimeter itself has gotten a little fuzzy. If you look at what happened to the colonial hack that happened a few weeks ago with the East Coast gas lines, this was an account that was being used for VPN purposes. This was an account that was not being used anymore. The credentials were probably surfaced on the dark web, but you also have credentials that are in logs in OLS3 buckets, right? So the challenge is the encryption debate has really taken off because the idea is if all that data is encrypted, even if that data gets in the wrong hands, the risk that somebody can put two and two and two together and essentially get into your account goes down significantly. The challenge, Shane, is that now you have slowed down a whole bunch of traffic that legitimately needs to be decrypted because there's all this other data you've collected that is all over the place that people can weaponize against you. It go, again, I think this is less an encryption debate and more a debate about just collecting less and having better data governance. Because if you only had better governance in terms of collecting less, making sure there's proper ownership of assets and data, making sure there's timely deletion and processing of data, if you had all that, you wouldn't need to encrypt the living daylights out of all the data that you may not even need to have to begin with because you're paying to store this data that you, that you shouldn't be collecting anyways. And by the way, storing data is expensive. It's not cheap anymore with the volumes that industry is talking about. And then the cost of having to query the data over and over again, the cost of having bad data give you bad outcomes, and then the cost of encrypting and decrypting that data. So I feel like people shouldn't focus again on the encryption too much, although that's important. I would say focus further left on collecting less and deleting it in a timely fashion. I would say when you ingest data, categorize that data, tag it at the point of ingestion, so you know down the street if you need to encrypt it or not. That's a much cheaper way of doing business than encrypting everything and then hoping that somehow you get bailed out. Because you know, even if you encrypt data, some engineer is going to get a hold of the keys from someplace else, decrypt the data, copy it someplace else, and of course, the cat's out of the door at that point. You just reminded me of one of my bane of my existence. A lot of people are password. I hate passwords, but I do use a password keeper. And I was just had my phone in my hand last night, and it popped up a notice that my parking mobile was my password was on the dark web. <laughs> and I was like, okay, let's just kind of stop everything and change my password. And you want to use a strong encrypted password, so I mean, it becomes like a game of like how how you know, how do you figure this out so you continue to be safe? So are we? Please tell me we're getting closer to like not needing passwords. And I'm saying that as somebody who's a very light fingerprint, so the fingerprint reader doesn't work for me, but. Please give us something other than passwords. I would hope so, because you know it's one of those things where I, you feel like you want to go more and more on the MFA side of the house. You want to make sure that authentication is driven more by behavioral context rather than just passwords. Because as you mentioned, and you know the person who has the privacy engineering and cybersecurity engine department at Carnegie Mellon, she was talking about this back in 2011, about passwords having low entropy. So it's not like we haven't known this for a while. So I feel like we are moving in that direction. The challenge is, we also have a lot of legacy players that are just now getting online. So we're talking about people who are for the first time getting on the internet, getting on the cloud. So as a percentage of online ecosystem players, yes, there are fewer people now using passwords or getting close to not using them, but there's more people coming in that are now going to be using passwords for the first time. So as a percentage, as from a user perspective, you will still see passwords growing in number because think about the number of people, the number of businesses that have no understanding of how to authenticate or authorize online, right? So yes, we are moving away from passwords for the players that know better that have been doing this for a while, but there are more people coming into the space and getting more customers online. So the bad news for you is as a percentage of players, there'll still be more people using passwords next year than they are this year. 
But I feel like we're getting to a point where the awareness around the space is rising more and more. More and more people are investing in seam and socks internally in-house so as to make sure there's better monitoring. So we may not be as password-free as you want us to be, Shane, but at the same time, there will be more timely warnings of people being told, hey, your password's getting compromised. So there is a better opportunity to fix those things before that becomes a gateway and the door. So I'm going to have you take a step back. You mentioned MFA. I imagine you're talking about multi-factor authentication. Make sure everybody's clear on that. How important is it? I'm not sure what the adoption level is. I used to work for a company that did two-factor auth. So I've I've known it for a long time, but I always was amazed for the longest time there was no application for it. Less of banking. Banking was really big. Is multi-factor authentication becoming more common? Are you seeing better adoption on that? Absolutely. And apologies, I should have been clearer. I, I just assumed I was, yeah, I get used to people knowing what MFA is. But basically the idea here is you want to use multiple means to authenticate who you are and verify your identity. That's what multi-factor authentication means, hence the word multi there. And I see, I think if you look back to the target use case where the bad actors got into the HVAC system, they were able to get in, they were able to grow their privileges because MFA didn't exist on a layer by layer basis. And we saw the exact same thing happen to Colonial Pipeline just a few weeks ago. So seven years out, it's like we have learned nothing, which I mean, people often worry about transnational actors doing bad things. We need to make sure that we clean a house based on the mistakes we made seven years ago. Like it's no point blaming somebody else like 13 time zones away if we don't even bother to learn from our mistakes from seven years ago. So I think MFA is definitely getting more and more uh, adoption across the board. And I also feel like we're learning more and more about the limitations of MFA. Like as an example, I have, there's a portion in chapter 10 in my book where I talk about the limitations of phone networks and how SMS messages can be intercepted. And if, if I can get the text message key that is sent to me to log in, let into my account, at that point, all I need is your password via the dark web, your mobile phone number. And at that point, I'm into your account. At that point, if I have your email verified, if I have your password compromised on your phone, how on earth are you going to know that your account's been compromised, right? So even MFA has its limitations. And I think this is where anomaly detection, detection this is where any kind of bad behavior in terms of past behavior being compared to present behavior all that's becoming very, very critical for companies. Having more investment on the monitoring side is becoming very critical as well. So this is where having MFA as a bare minimum and then having more monitoring, more anomaly detection is becoming very critical. And I go back to my earlier point, Shane, just as GDPR and CCP are not the only things that will get you out the door, MFA is not the only thing that will help you protect yourself when it comes to breaches. I always think it's like locking your cars is not locking your car. I mean, right. if, it, if the guy's just doing the smash and grab and he's just grabbing on to see what cars are open and your car's locked, He's going to move on to the next car that might be easier to break into. At some point, he might really want to get into your car. You mentioned the ransomware. It reminds me of the, the importance of compliance. And the regulated industries, which Colonial is, is you know they have laws and guidance that they need to work around. So a lot of the edge providers don't have that right now. And I guess that's where we're expecting this privacy legislation whenever it comes to fruition to happen. But are there certain elements of compliance that you work with with your legal team that are you know, just part of being on people's phones or does it matter? I mean, is it you're complying because it's the right thing to do, but it's not a legal obligation? Absolutely. There's a full framework I work on and not just me, but all my peers as part of cybersecurity on an ongoing basis. If you think about it this way, Shane, you want to think of foundational capabilities, mature capabilities and next gen capabilities. So when it comes to monitoring, when it comes to detection, when it comes to protection, when it comes to data sharing, what are the protection capabilities you need to have at, a, at the very beginning? And this is like table stakes when it comes to collecting data. What are the things you need to do in terms of point-to-point encryption, in terms of encryption address, encryption in motion, obfuscation of data? So as an example, if you're collecting somebody's food orders or somebody's streaming history, 
How do you obfuscate somebody's IP address to make sure that they are part of a larger cohort rather than individually identifiable? So how do you make sure that the data is less potent if somebody gets a hold of it? How do you make it harder for somebody to get hold of that data to begin with? So you essentially come up with these capabilities. And honestly, I don't think companies should wait to be regulated or audited to do this. Like you need to be able to build these capabilities out on the ground up, right? Like it doesn't take much to come up with a foundational framework. Like as an example, how much money should you have in the bank to buy a townhome in say Florissant, Missouri? You would need a little more money to buy it in St. Charles, Missouri. You need even more to buy it in Clayton, Missouri, right? We think of life in terms of tiers, in terms of tiers of maturity, tiers of accomplishment. I just wonder why security and privacy have not gotten that level of treatment because it's one of those things where it's almost like the industry is waiting for the government to tell it what to do. Like we complain about the government not being very sophisticated. And by the way, they are not. We've seen cyber ransomware attacks happening as far back as 2019. I think it was Baltimore or New Orleans that was cyber hijacked in December of that year. So this cyber ransomware, these issues are not brand new. So I would say any company needs to come up with tiers of maturity. And there's chapter 11 in this book that'll help you do just that from all the way across, from collection of data to protecting it, to detecting any kind of malbehavior, and also further on in terms of other levels of maturity. And I feel like companies can start investing in that because when they do that, engineers will come to you with more ideas and more suggestions, and you'll start building that framework internally without waiting for federal privacy legislation to tell you what to do. You've definitely seen that with GDPR and the right. fact that you have a real monetary problem there if you're not, you're not in compliance. So that's interesting. This has been such a great conversation. I cannot wait to read your book. When is it coming out? The book should be out end of next month or, or early to middle of August. It's called Privacy Engineering by Manning Publications. We are going through final edits as we speak. I'm getting these podcasts ready, hopefully that they'll line up with the book release. So I've gotten a ton of feedback from engineers. It's already available on pre-sale. So the link's available to you, Shane. So thank you again for talking about the book with me as well. Absolutely. No, I think that I'm going to want to have lots of people in the legislative and regulatory sphere read it, <laughs> or at least their staff, probably more, more, more likely their staff. But it's been fantastic to have you as a guest on Explain to Shane, and we hope to hear from you again soon. Definitely. Thank you so much, Shane. Thank you for making time for me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.